Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. This is a special episode of Long Reads that we've recorded at short notice because of the war in Gaza. I spoke to Palestinian academic Bashir Abu Mane about the situation that's developed over the last week and what's likely to happen next. Bashir is a reader in post-colonial literature at the University of Kent and the author of The Palestinian Novel from 1948 to the Present. He's also a contributing editor at Jacobin, who's written many articles for us about Palestinian politics. Things are moving very rapidly from one day to the next. Our conversation was recorded on Monday, October 16th. But it's already clear that the Israeli government is engaged in collective punishment of the people of Gaza. Speaking at a press conference last week, the Israeli president Isaac Herzog explicitly blamed the civilian population of Gaza for the actions of Hamas. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up, they could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we're at war. We are at war. We're at war with at our, we're defending our homes. We're protecting our homes. And then when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we'll break their backbone. By October 16th, Israeli airstrikes had killed at least 2,800 people in Gaza, including more than 700 children. Speaking on Britain's Sky News that day, the Israeli ambassador, Zippy Hotoveli, repeatedly denied that there was a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Uh, there is no humanitarian crisis because... There isn't. It, there is no. Israel is in charge of the safety of the Israelis. Hamas is in charge of the safety of the Palestinians. We've been showing pictures this morning that would illustrate that there is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Are you a mother? Yes. What would you think if your children would have been executed in front of your eyes? Would you expect your government to think about those Nazis committing those crimes and to say, wait a second, first of all, we need to protect the enemy and then to protect my children. Your children come as priority to your prime minister. Do you know that? We have been showing images this morning that uh, illustrate that there is a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. So blame Hamas and ask Hamas why they started those atrocities, walking around... So you acknowledge that there is a humanitarian crisis? I'm saying there is no. Israel is working. So what do you think is happening? What is happening? There is a war in Gaza, a war that Hamas started by committing a horrible massacre on innocent Israelis. The world has seen seen that. Wait a second. Just just I want to say and give a little bit of a context. Those people created crimes that are worse than ISIS. Israel is better than any other army in the world. We are alert. The following day, we saw the greatest single loss of life to date, with hundreds killed by an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. But Western leaders are still refusing to call for a ceasefire. After landing in Israel this morning, October 18th, to give his support to Benjamin Netanyahu, Joe Biden claimed that the other team was responsible for the hospital killings, as if he was talking about a baseball match. Bashir, thanks for joining us. To begin with the broader political background of what's been happening over the last year and the last 18 months, could you 
give people who perhaps haven't been following things in detail or, or maybe not at all a sense of what has been happening in the occupied territories, both in Gaza and the West Bank? What is the political composition and intentions of Benjamin Netanyahu's government? And what has been happening on the regional and diplomatic front with talk about normalization between Israel and states like Saudi Arabia? Thank you, Daniel. It's nice to be here with you. So I think it's important in order to begin explaining what happened in the last week, in the last uh, couple of days, to look back at the composition of the Israeli government. I think we have the most right-wing government in Israeli history. It's essentially a settler government, mostly made up of ministers that have been previously either have been inciting violence or actively participated in, in terrorism themselves, has been called, loosely called, in many different quarters, fascistic. And that government now has been in power. The effect of having that government in place is that it has allowed for facilitated, encouraged settler terrorism in, in the West Bank. And it has continued to put a lot of pressure in through the siege on Gaza. There's also been various escalations, like things that have been described in the mainstream press as pogroms committed against the Palestinians. So the Palestinians have been put under a, a lot of extreme pressure in the last period as a result of this government. And therein lies the very specific triggers and, and causes of what happened in the last week. So this intensifying, if you like, Jewish supremacy, this talk, which is fairly widespread in Israel about trying to facilitate or encourage or create the conditions for future mass expulsion, the new Nakba. Smotrich is a very famous finance minister who's also uh, responsible for the West Bank, is very famous for giving an interview in 2016 to Haaretz where he said the Palestinians have essentially three choices. Either they accept our rule, we govern, we are masters, or they leave, or if they stay and fight, we will deal with them the way we dealt with them in 1948. So, you know, the vision that has been provided by this government is a vision of, and he explicitly said that in the interview and also through the action that has taken place in the last period of government rule, is that there is no hope for the Palestinians. This is as good as it gets. It might get even worse. That most Palestinians are suspected of being terrorists and need to be treated as such, they have to prove that they're not terrorists and that there is no vision for the future for the Palestinians. So there is no prospect for peace. So on some level, the root causes of what happens is a result of Israel producing this locking, shutting down a political horizon, this political failure that has been produced for the Palestinians, where they have tried, if you like, the path in the West Bank through the PA, the path of peace, the path of compromise. This has been a very long story in Oslo of trying to accommodate with the Israelis, conciliate with them, make a lot of concessions. And then the result has been deepening and entrenching occupation, right? So the Palestinians haven't had, the PLO hasn't had anything in return for accepting the state of Israel, for accepting peace, for renouncing violence, etc. And those things are noted by militant groups like Hamas, who have also tried this route. And it's very important to remind the audience that Hamas has 
taken a pragmatic route before in 2006 when it became very popular and was voted in democratically by the Palestinians 2007 and 9 even in the last couple of years it has communicated to Israel that they would be happy to have a long-term hudna a long-term ceasefire in order to facilitate the creation of the Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza and to end the occupation but all of those things have been rejected by Israel have been simply blocked by Israel and actually the opposite has happened. The reverse has happened. So what the Israelis have tried to do was several things. They've tried to resolve this problem, this political problem, if you like, through economic means. So in Gaza, they tried to give more and more permits, work permits for Gazan workers to come in. That releases economic pressure on Hamas. And they thought that Hamas would be satisfied as a governing body with this and that that would alleviate pressure and that they will stop, in a sense, um, um, resisting that way. They will accept the, the status quo of subservience and control over, over work permit. They did the same with the PA. Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza have no political rights. They have no rights to speak of. But uh, economic levers have been used in order to alleviate some of the pressures. But there is no political horizon. There is no political settlement. There is also, on top of that, this push which Israel has undertaken to militarize the resistance because Israel has always wanted to take the resistance to a military confrontation where it's very powerful, where the balance of forces is clearly on Israeli side and then where they can attack Hamas, attack Hamas for for terrorism, attack Hamas for undertaking violence against the Israeli state and where they have Israel seems to get most legitimacy in the international scene over that. So pushing for militarization is taking the resistance, the Palestinian resistance, broadly conceived as violent and non-violence, to a violent military confrontation where the Israelis can, can control it more. So those are some of the things that have been happening. Um, the composition of the Netanyahu government, which is very extreme. What's happening in Gaza and the West Bank on the ground, the intensifying pressures in the West Bank, the attempt to release economic pressures on the Gazan while continuing the siege of Gaza. That clearly hasn't worked and, and exploded very violently in Israel's face. And the idea that there is no hope and no, no prospect for peace. So this is as good as it gets. Now, on top of that, I want to bracket the nature of the Israeli regime for a second, and, and maybe we can, maybe we can come, come back to that. But on top of that, what the Palestinians saw is, especially with the Trump administration and now supported by supported by the Biden administration, is the attempt to make peace with the Arab regimes that want to make peace with Israel or are interested in making peace with Israel, what is called the Abraham Accords. So those peace treaties have essentially sidelined the Palestinian question, have essentially produced no political goods for the Palestinians, the opposite. There are normalizations for free, as it were, as far as the Palestinians are concerned. And they have also importantly sidelined what used to be called the Arab Peace Initiative, which is the, the fact that 22 countries in the Arab world, in the 80s, but also in the 2000s, offered Israel peace for the end of occupation, total normalization with Israel, like the PLO did before Oslo. Oslo was much less than that because it didn't end the occupation and it didn't provide Palestinians with political rights. But the Arab Peace Initiative was a diplomatic attempt to do that. Israel has at every point rejected that peace option, sidelined it. And now it's trying to conduct peace with those Arab regimes that are willing to do so without conceding anything for the Palestinians or without ending the occupation. That, of course, is the new paradigm that we're dealing with, and that adds to the Palestinian feeling that there's a lack of political horizon, political solution 
for the Palestinian question, and all that the Israelis are offering is for the subservience and subordination, and a regime essentially of apartheid segregation and what has been described by human rights organizations as Jewish supremacy in Israel-Palestine. To understand the events that have been happening, I think it's important to understand the nature of the Israeli regime in Israel-Palestine. And there are always discussions about whether it's an apartheid regime, whether it's an occupation regime, what rights do the Palestinians have, etc. I think it's very important to think about Israel in practice as a settler colonial regime, where the Palestinian population, and hence the difference with the South African model, where the Palestinian population is essentially dispensable, where the Palestinian population is not exploited, is not needed for the Israeli regime in, to continue in any way. Israel, Israel does not benefit from the Palestinian population like that, other than being a captive market, etc. But they are fundamentally dispensable to the Israeli state. And that allows Israel to do the various things it does in Gaza, because it doesn't need the population for anything. It allows Israel to conduct what, what has been described as wars of politicide, wars that would end the possibility of any collective political rights for the Palestinians, for any sense of nationhood or statehood, etc., was that undercut that what in the language that mode alone it's cut their leadership, pressured them culturally, cut their political institutions, subordinate them, etc. But the reason that Israel is able to do that is precisely because it's the Palestinians are dispensable. And precisely because of that, the Palestinians are also, from an Israeli perspective, they're able, if they create the sufficient conditions, if they create the sometimes the fog of war, they might be able to expel them to create the conditions for expulsion. And of course, these are the worries about what's happening in Gaza now. Thanks very much for that, Bashir. Coming on to the situation today, the crisis as it's been unfolding over the last week. First of all, what was it about the attacks that were carried out by Hamas on October 7th, the Saturday before last, that differed from previous actions by Hamas and by other armed Palestinian groups? And secondly, how has the Israeli government and the Israeli political class responded? How is it likely to continue responding over the coming days and weeks? And how does that differ from previous moments such as 2009 or 2014? So the first thing to say, maybe if I think about some of the continuities in Hamas's conception of resistance, if you like, right? So Hamas has always used military techniques before. Suicide bombings, targeting civilians was was something that Hamas did. The Qassams, very primitive forms of rockets, nonetheless, they they are heading towards uh, civilian areas. So Hamas has always done that. That's very clear. But I think the distinction now, they have also targeted Israeli soldiers. There are aspects of international law that allow for violent resistance against the occupiers, and that that means Israeli occupation forces, etc. But they've also done more. That targeting of civilian has been consistent. I think the difference is not always used, sometimes peace is offered, sometimes more pragmatic routes are offered, etc. But it's always as part of their toolkit, as it were, as a movement. But I think what's different about last week is the scale. I think the scale is like nothing that Israel has ever seen. The operation involved thousands of people. That has been kept secret for a very long time. So it's kind of astounding under conditions of constant surveillance. Palestinians live in, in Gaza where you have drones hovering over Gaza 24 hours a day, hundreds of drones, where every word is being recorded, 
where there's surveillance across the border, to be able to achieve that level of secrecy and that level of, of organization, that level of discipline to conduct an operation like this, to, as it were, cross the border and attack targets in Israel, has astounded Israel and left it in a deep political crisis, which won't be resolved for a long time. Israeli leaders, political leaders, state managers will pay the cost for this operation for a very long time. And it'll change the nature of Israeli politics, I think, and, and seemingly, I think, make them more extreme. But we can, back, we can come back to the Israeli side. But ultimately, you have to look at the numbers. The details matter in these operations. Most of the people killed were civilians. The scale of killing was very high. We're talking about the majority, overwhelming majority of people killed were civilians. Around 300 soldiers were killed and targeted in their bases, etc. So it essentially, whether that was the Hamas intention or not, whether those were what the commanders told Hamas fighters to do, whether Hamas lost control of the operation or not, it's very hard to know at this stage. But the net result is that you have around 900 people killed and there are some more injured still in the hospital in critical condition. So I think the scale changes the story. And you have to calculate, when I first heard about the operation that morning, you have to think about two elements, which are difficult to discuss in liberation movements, but they have always been discussed. One is the rationality of the operation. How rational is it? Is it an operation which is, seeks to end the Israeli occupation or not? Will it just fortify the Israeli occupation? Will Israel uh, conduct a massive, high human cost, if you want to call it retaliation or response to this operation? Will Hamas be able to stop it or not? All of these are important. So what is the political rationality of this operation? Is it just to position themselves as the ultimate resistors in Palestinian history uh, in relationship to the PA? Is it because all other avenues of of resolution have failed because the possibilities of peace have failed? Is it because siege has not been lifted, Israel has not compromised, Israel has not improved condition? There has to be a political rationale for the operation. It's not clear at the moment what that rationale is. If you hear Deif's speech, the Qassam military commander, he expected this to be a spark in the whole region, a spark for all Palestinians, including 48 Palestinians, to conduct more operations inside. The language was very clear. It wasn't just targeted against the military. It was targeted against civilians. It said, take your knives, take your cars, resist. So was that the intention? If that was the intention, was that a realistic intention? If that was a realistic intention, would it be successful militarily? All of those things are are really big questions, and I, and I and I you know I cannot see that the answer for them. I cannot understand what Hamas provides as as an answer for these questions because I think that fundamentally there is something de- other than the moral dimensions which I'll come to, but politically there's something completely counterproductive about the operation because I think you would have calculated the Israeli response, which would have been exactly what they're doing now, which would have been an intent and the will to extract a mass human cost in Gaza for the resistance in ways in which Hamas would not have been able to protect the civilian population. So the question becomes, when you resist, the moral question, does anything go? And the answer in international law is no, not anything goes, right? If you leave the political aspects aside, and if you leave the political rationality calculations aside, if you leave aside the fact that Hamas has always wanted to instill insecurity in the Israeli side, precisely because insecurity is instilled in the Palestinian side. If that was the logic of resistance. You, we don't live in peace. 
we don't live in security, neither does your population. Okay, Hamas suicide bombings does that, Qassam does that. But does that resolve, bring you closer to the end of occupation is the real question. Or entrench the occupation and entrench Israeli violence and state terrorism. That is not clear to me that this that, that is what, what Hamas would say about this and whether Hamas has thought that a different outcome is possible here. The other is, of course, the I'll return to this very briefly, the moral dimension, the anything goes. Are you allowed to target civilians? And the answer is no. And the answer is no, not only because of the nature of the Palestinian cause, which is committed to justice and, and equality, but the answer is no also because the Palestinians need international support. The Palestinians do not have Arab regime support. They have Arab popular support, but that doesn't ha- hasn't amounted to much in terms of winning over political outcomes of freedom, etc. So they are reliant, very reliant on what happens in the West, very reliant on international law, and they have tried to hold Israel accountable for its violation, endless violation of international law and illegal occupation. So it is the one thing, the one discourse that the Palestinians use in the West and and that Israel is totally on the defensive of, right? And if you lose that in this moral fight in the West, you're losing quite a lot, especially since the balance of forces is totally against you, overwhelmingly against you. You are ultimately fighting a nuclear power that has F-16s, that is able to bomb it with total uh, American and, and, and Western cover. So again, the issue of morality is important and, and the issue of, of the politics of this operation, the rationality of it is important. We'll have to continue li- hearing, reading interpretations, trying to figure out what Hamas, what Hamas was thinking about it. But Hamas now lives in a world where this operation now tags it like ISIS. That's the world that we live in now. And that is a total loss for the Palestinian cause publicly in the West and also publicly in general. And now you have to explain to the world that the Palestinian cause is just again, that Palestinians do not believe in that kind of violence and that Palestinians have legitimate rights rather than what we get now, which is that the Palestinian cause is being criminalized. All these things have been lost on the on in, in the international scene as a result of this operation, which, of course, Israel was bound to exploit as an opportunity, like America over 9-11, in order to roll back any kind of aspirations for, for Palestinian statehood and in order to decimate this notion of, of the Palestinians ever having, ever gaining their rights and to roll back the Palestinian cause for, for decades to come. So what has been the Israeli response? I think as expected. I think the scale of the operation was entirely predictable that Israel, which has been in a deep political crisis for the last year over the what is described as the overhaul of the legal system in order to essentially allow for political interference and not to hold the political echelon accountable through law, that is gone. The Israeli population is totally unified, as you'd expect in settler colonies when their security is at stake as a civilian population. They're totally unified behind the IDF and behind savaging cruelly, and bombing Gaza. Bombing Gaza back for decades uh, to come and bombing Gaza, decimating any kind of civilian life in Gaza, destroying tens of thousands of buildings. You know, Israel, want they want a cost for this. They want to see the numbers of Palestinians. They, they want to see that kind of retaliation. So the Israeli response is entirely predictable. And now it's the fear is that it has created conditions for Israel to expel. That seems to be the intent of moving over a million Palestinians from North Gaza. They have subjected the the Palestinians to total siege, 
starvation, which are against international law. They're used as weapons of war. And then they also said that they wanted to end Hamas. I don't know how that's possible without a ground invasion. I don't know whether a ground invasion is realistic for Israel, but they certainly don't want the scenes of Hamas rising from the rubble after this huge operation and and remaining intact organizationally and militarily. So it is politically absolutely very difficult ground. It's very hard to know how it's going to end. But just to give you a sense of what the actions that Israel has, has taken so far, you just have to read some of the words that Israeli politicians are allowed to utter on Western media, which are horrifying. So you had Eli Cohen, who said, the minister who said that we are living close to monsters, close to inhuman people. You had Danny Danone on hard talk, totally unchallenged, talking about Hamas as a, as a bunch of animals, talking about them as basic animals who, who need to be killed. You have Yoav Gallant, the f- defense minister, very early on talking about uh, that we are fighting, saying we are fighting human animals. The Israeli president says that the whole Palestinian nation is responsible for what Hamas did. Those are genocidal thoughts, right? Those are genocidal thoughts. And it's extremely worrying that we are now in a situation where those things are allowed to be said without being challenged. And that becomes the mode of engagement over the Palestinian question, right? Where you've lost any... Israel is never held accountable for what it does. Israel is never, the right of defense seems to be total, which means that Israel can do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, against international law, commit war crimes at will, with total and complete support by the EU, of course by the US, and, and unchallenged by the media. So I think all of those things would have been entirely predictable. Talking now about the international response, which you alluded to there. We can divide this into two broad areas. There is the reaction in Europe and in North America, and then there's the reaction in the Arab world and the Middle East. So if we can begin with the response of the US, of the Biden administration and Congress in general, also the reaction of important European states such as Britain, France, Germany, and then the institutions of the European Union itself and figures such as Ursula von der Leyen. What do you make of that response and how does it differ so far from what we saw at the time of previous Israeli offensives in Gaza in 2009 or 2014 and further back perhaps operations such as the offensive in Lebanon in 2006? So what you seem to hear all the time, which is extremely worrying, is not that they're supporting Israel's right to self-defense, which they always do. It's kind of an automatic thing for for Western regimes to do that, for the EU as well, that Israel has a right of self-defense. They never ask whether this is self-defense. They never ask whether Israel has any other alternatives to conducting or resolving the political conflict through force or by military means. Those questions never seem to ask, never seem to be asked. They never say that Israel is the powerful entity and Israel is the one that has historically wronged the Palestinians. They just state that Israel has a right to, to defend itself right, and to fight against terrorism. And the cost of that seems to be, in everything they say, totally acceptable for them. So n- now they are in a position, EU officials, Western officials, of essentially illegally, which makes them liable under international law, illegally supporting forcible transfer of the population, essentially supporting expulsion, defending war crimes, defending the siege, which is illegal. All of these things have been, Israel said they're going to do. All of these things have been intentional. 
all of these things are being done and that the EU continues to support it. And that goes for the EU. It goes for Britain here and for, this, for the government, as if to say that we, we only talk about Israeli lives and only Israeli lives matter, but the Palestinian lives don't matter. There's no universal standard being used here at all. It's, all, it's one set of life is much more important than another set of life, and it's the only set of life that we talk about. So the, the world, the Arab world, the Palestinians hear this and are absolutely appalled by those kinds of responses. The difficulty here is also to see elements. They were much better, progressives were much better in the US, uh, like Bernie Sanders, um, of course, Rashid Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, who made statements of condemnation against Israel's targeting of civilians, and I, of course, condemnation for Hamas's targeting of civilians in the, in the operation. But we didn't get the same in England. It's bizarre that in England with the Labour Party, Keir Starmer seems to make himself criminally liable by simply not only supporting the siege, but supporting the forcible transfer of, of the population. It's mind-boggling that we get to this state in England, especially after the Corbyn year, but that that has been the effect of the success of the Israel lobby in this country and silencing any kind of defense on the media and in, in, in public political life of elementary Palestinian rights, right? So I think the response is not only extremely worrying, but it gives you a sense of, unless Israel makes a huge more and more, right, makes it impossible for Western states to support it because the Western population moves and mobilizes. There is hope in that. There is hope in, in last Saturday's demonstration in London, where Suella Braverman is trying to criminalize the Palestinian flag, trying to criminalize Palestinian freedom of speech and chants. And then you get this massive demonstration in London full of Palestinian flag affirming Palestinian uh, human rights and, and collective rights. The only way to change government positions and to get them to think about this uh, conflict in terms of international law and to uphold the rights of everyone in this conflict is by popular pressure. There is no internal political route. And see, it seems, right, either in the Labour Party or, or in, 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 of course, in, in, the, in the Tory party. In the Arab world, in terms of regimes, we'll try more and more to accommodate with Israel for, for various reasons. I mean, of course, if you want to take the example of the Saudis, the Saudis do it because of their confrontation with Iran, because the Saudis are seeking, in a sense, nuclear arms, a nuclear energy, uh, the ability to build a nuclear facility, in, in, and that they think that this is the Palestinian issue or peace with Israel is a way of leveraging it. So for purely Saudi interest that they, they are undertaking these talks, with Israel, and they've also, in their public discourse, have essentially accused the Palestinians and the Palestinian cause of being blocks on modernization and development in the Middle East. Right, so you can see that rhetoric. You know, this old conflict is tired now. You need to put it aside. We need to think about a different kind of Middle East where economic prosperity is possible, where the Arab states become more powerful, etc. So the Arab states, in that framework, operate within those kinds of paradigms. It's complicated with Ukraine. It's complicated with the warming rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Those things, I'm sure, have their own ramifications. But in general, the regimes are quite different from where the Arab population thinks, which you can see in many demonstrations in Yemen, in Iraq, in Rabat yesterday. I mean, tens of hundreds of thousands go out into the street and continue to support the Palestinian cause, despite of very many years and loss of hope and no real results 
on the ground. That's always very encouraging, but because the Arab regimes are dictatorial regimes, authoritarian regimes, what the population thinks and whether that translates into policy is always a big issue. So that I don't see, I see pressure over blocking Israel from conducting, say, a, 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 an operation on the ground, which is great. Even Biden made some noises about that today, saying, you know, he cannot, he, he cannot see an Israeli operation. It, it won't end well, certainly for the Israelis, certainly not for the Palestinians, but the cost will be very high. But in terms of the Arab population, so long as the Arab regimes are authoritarian and dictatorial regimes, that mass support will not be translated into political support, certainly in the region and certainly not on Israel. So we are stuck with that. We are stuck with the fact that Arab regimes allow Arab masses, as it were, to go to the street and support the Palestinians, and it kind of stops at that, right? So I think that's in part part of the problem. But it's absolutely heartwarming for a, an oppressed population whose cause is at will being criminalized to see that level of popular support across the world, including in the West. It's absolutely heartwarming, and it allows us to consider that ultimately Israeli propaganda is not landing. Ultimately, people see, even though they think that what Hamas did targeting civilians is totally illegitimate, but they are able to see beyond that and to see the Palestinians as a group of people that have their own legitimate rights that need to be defended. Um, and that is, you know, that is not what Israel wants. So boosting that, supporting that, keeping that political pressure and public discourse alive is absolutely essential. And keeping it, I think, fundamentally in the West within the parameters of international law, which is fundamentally against everything that Israel does, is an asset for the Palestinians. So you don't want to be able to lose that because it provides you with so many rights. There is a pragmatic dimension to it, politically pragmatic dimension to it, but there is also a moral dimension to upholding international law because it allows you to uphold universal standards across the board and to be able to safeguard life on the Israeli side, civilian life, and to be able to safeguard civilian life on the, on the Palestinian side and to see a way through the conflict that would allow the two peoples to live together one day, if that's at all possible after this operation. I know that the situation is developing very rapidly from one day to the next, but could you try perhaps to give people a sense of what the latest developments on the ground in Gaza have been even since the end of last week over the weekend and up to Monday, which is when we're recording. And what you think is likely to happen? Is there a serious prospect of a full-scale Israeli ground operation? And is there a real danger of large-scale forced population transfer on a scale of what we saw back in 1947 and 1948, which is... Uh, an alarming prospect that several people have been discussing recently. So a, a new Nakba is totally possible. I mean, the conditions are there. Israel has already forced the population of northern of northern Gaza to go to the southern Gaza, even though sometimes it bombed them along the way. So there is no safe passage for the population to move. The population is starved of water, of food. There's no electricity, totally besieged from air, ground, with nowhere to go. And nowhere is safe as Israel continues to bomb. I read a statistic last week that in, in the first week, I think, of Israeli bombing, Israel dropped bombs on Gaza more than the US dropped in a year in Afghanistan. Right? So this is 
the, the, the scale is, you know, there's no other word to describe it. The scale is uh, not only horrific, but genocidal. Right? I don't use these words uh, laxly in any way, and I've never used them over the Palestinian conflict before because the wars were much less savage than the current and cruel world that we see. But the scale is suicidal, considering that you don't allow for water, electricity, food, etc. Considering the siege, what, how, how are people? People take sips of water, one sip of water a day. People don't have food to eat. If you prolong this, if you block electricity from hospitals, if, if the generators run out, what do you expect will happen in Gaza? Tens of thousands of people will die. So the new Nakba is already here. The only thing blocking the Palestinians from leaving the Gaza Strip is that at the moment Egypt is closing the border. So there is no way for them to go to safety and then to come back to their home. The natural thing is war, in war is to go to a place of safety until insecurity ends and then for you to be able to return home. Of course, Palestinians are always afraid of leaving their homes. So there is that emotional and psychological pressure over, well, if you leave northern Gaza, will you be able to return to northern Gaza? Or will, will Israel simply just declare the north of Gaza a closed military zone for Israel? And you'll be, never be able to return. Because the statements that have come out of Israel are that Israel will totally change the way Gaza looks. What does that exactly mean when you say you want to change the way Gaza looks, change the whole landscape of Gaza, inflict a cost which will be remembered for generations to come? You know, this is, you know, again, this is genocidal language. It's very hard to tell how this is going to end. You know, it's very hard to predict at the moment. It's subject to a lot of political pressure and contention. It depends on how much political pressure is put on Israel. It depends how much popular pressure there is against the war. It depends on how many people come out in demonstrations. All these things you simply cannot predict. But Israel has always been, you can rely on that in every operation, its worst enemy. Because it always there's always excess, there's always excessive violence, and those things always trigger people. They always give Israel time, but ultimately the war stops. Whether it's going to stop before a land invasion or not is a big question. Whether a ceasefire will be enforced very soon is a big question. But I don't think that I don't think we've said this for a very long time. We've said this for a couple of years. I don't but now it's even much worse. I don't think the civilian population can tolerate a day more from that kind of uh, bombing and that kind of siege. So from a moral perspective, this needs to stop yesterday. This, this needs to be over. How do you think about the future around this? I mean, Israel, this war has absolutely unified the Israeli public behind the army. And that is extremely worrying. There is no room for criticism. The Israeli army, of course, they will criticize the fact that it was caught sleeping you know, it didn't protect their citizens enough, and the border was left, you know, unattended. It, of course, there'll be political costs that the political leadership will have to pay for that failure. But the Israeli population is absolutely uncritical, in fact, supportive of the need to reestablish what Israel calls deterrence, deterrence against the Palestinians, which is, in a sense, searing which has never worked, but Israel continues to use those same mechanisms, to use the language of Fosh, which is searing in Palestinian consciousness that they are defeated and they'll never be able to win, but also deterrence in relationship to the region. Right? So Israel is always in those conflicts, has an eye on its regional antagonists and needs to be able to reaffirm its deterrence so that those antagonists do not have ideas of their own, especially also in the north as well in relationship 
to Hezbollah. The only way out, you know, it's very simple and it's it's a simple thing to say, but, you know, the truth sometimes is very simple. The only way out is to hold Israel accountable in international law, to hold everyone accountable for war crimes. But since Israel has historically, is historically the one that has wronged the Palestinians and is the occupying power and has obligations under, under international law as an occupying power, and Gaza is occupied, whatever the Israelis say it is, it's totally controlled by Israel. The fact that they can switch off the electricity in Gaza just tells you who the occupier is, right? So to hold the occupier accountable for its legal obligations under international law, to safeguard the Palestinian right of self-determination, which is also under international law, and to work, put political pressure on Israel in the next juncture to ensure that violence ends that Israeli state terrorism ends against the Palestinians, and that the Palestinian side does not conduct or have recourse to violence or terrorism the way it did uh, last week in order to try to resolve the conflict or to call out to the world that you know the Palestinians haven't been forgotten and shouldn't be forgotten. So the only way to resolve this is that that's a very tall order these days. I mean, the Palestinians' cause in public will have to claw back a lot of the things that we have lost in the last week. And that that won't be easy. I hope it won't take a very long time, but you know that's going to involve a lot of work in order to get back to a discourse which is away from our obligation is to, prov- to provide Israel with state security, and that's our only obligation, to an equitable solution of the Palestinian question and to have peace with Israel by providing an end to the Israeli occupation and allowing statehood. I don't know how long it will take, but we are certainly working in much worse terrain than we have before that operation. As a final question or a final topic for discussion and picking up on what you've just said there, there was a major essay published in the New York Times by Peter Beinart, the American journalist, over the weekend, which was discussing some of those very questions that you you were talking about earlier about the ethics of resistance and different methods of struggle, but also the practical efficacy of different methods of struggle and the relationship between those two questions, the ethical dimension and the practical dimension and where we go from here and where the movement for Palestinian rights and self-determination is going to go from here. I believe you wanted to say a little about that. Yeah, I think it's a very important essay. It's a very courageous thing to write at this stage when essentially the Palestinian cause has been criminalized. And I think it's an it's an important discussion to have about the nature of liberation struggles and the different tactics that are used and what is legitimate to use in decolonization struggles. So it's a welcome debate now, political debate and very important political debate to initiate. And also, I think, very important to stand, whatever the different political agents are on the Palestinian scene, it's very important to stand in solidarity with an oppressed people and to affirm one's support for their, you know, legitimate and inalienable rights. I think that's a very good thing to do, and it's good for Peter Barnard for writing this. So the ethical question is important. It has a pragmatic dimension. The pragmatic dimension is that nonviolent struggle in Palestine, in occupied Palestine, was very successful in the First Intifada. And it was very successful for very good reasons in the First Intifada. The First Intifada was a time when the borders were kind of porous between Israel and Palestine, between Israel and unoccupied Palestine. And Palestinian workers could go into Israel. They were much needed in order to boost the Israeli economy. They were needed as cheap labor. They could go in, go into Israel. Um, they couldn't stay there, but they could go in and work. 
earn their wages and then come back and feed their families in the West Bank and Gaza, mainly as builders and as construction workers, but also in many other areas within Israel. That began in, immediately after the occupation in 1967 and continued until the first intifada. That ability to go into Israel, that ability, if you like, in more technical terms, to be exploited labor within the Israeli polity and within the Israeli economy gave the Palestinians a certain kind of leverage. And that period is comparable to what Peter Beinart is talking about in relationship to South Africa. Blacks in South Africa were exploited. Blacks in South Africa, that exploitation gave them leverage. It also allowed them to, as laborers, to organize. It allowed them, withdrawing their labor, put pressure on the economy and the colonial polities involved, like it did in South Africa. And they could exercise a certain level of control over that. And they can pile pressure on on their, as it were, they're the ones who dominate them, etc. It worked in the First Intifada. The First Intifada was an amazing, popular moment of resistance, of Palestinian resistance for freedom and independence, which pushed the Israelis. The Israelis tried to repress it by force, of course, by breaking bones, very famously, as Rabin said. It held on. It didn't work. It continued, and then it yielded political results. The fact that it yielded political results and it forced political concessions, whatever we think about those concessions, and whether we think those concessions are enough or not, Oslo, before that, the Madrid Accords, which were very different from Oslo because they tried to abide by international law, but certainly Oslo afterwards, forced the Israelis to think about a non-violent way, non-force way of resolving the conflict. That happened precisely because of those, if you like, political economic conditions where the Israeli economy is reliant on Palestinian labor. But what Oslo did, and I think it needs to be understood in this context and where the comparison with with the apartheid regime in South Africa ends, Israel learned the lessons of that resistance, of that popular resistance, and learned about its vulnerability to that political tool. And then slowly instituted in Oslo closure and a permit regime which stopped the Palestinian labor coming into Israel and controlled it even more through a permit system. So it controls now through the permit system every aspect of Palestinian life. Whether you get a permit, how much you pay for it, whether you, whether you collaborate or not, whether you trade the permit for, for, um, for hospitalization for one of your relatives, it's, not, it's a means of pressure and a means of control on the Palestinians. And it's much less numbers than before. And the Palestinian laborers who built up the Israeli economy, who built up Israeli housing sector, have been replaced by foreign workers in the 90s and also by Russian immigrants, etc. So that moment has ended. And that equivalence or comparison with the South African regime doesn't work anymore. So the difficulty for from this perspective is how do you resist when the Israelis have instituted Oslo, where they have a local, essentially collaborationist regime in terms of security, that ultimately polices them, polices the Palestinians, prevents the Palestinians from actively, non-violently, also non-violently resisting against the occupation, blocks the Palestinians from confronting the occupation, whether confronting soldiers militarily or, or confronting settlers through demonstrations or coming out and organizing openly and freely. What Oslo put in place was an authoritarian regime in the West Bank and Gaza, which is totally economically and politically dependent on their occupiers. So these are very different conditions than what we had in South Africa. Hence, this notion that the Palestinians are dispensable, have no rights, and have no ability to put leverage on 
on Israel as a state allows for, opens, makes it more likely that the Palestinians will try, within those new parameters of total segregation, will try to get at their occupiers. And violence seems to be a way of getting at your occupiers. If you think about suicide bombings, if you think about the Qassams, as they lock you away, they throw you in, a, in an open-air prison. The only way where you can show that you are unhappy and want to resist those conditions and transform them is to, the main way that has been used, if Israel doesn't accept peace and peaceful resolution, is to conduct those kinds of, of operations. That's the bind, right? The bind is that the Palestinians are constantly pushed by the settler colonial regime, which makes them dispensable, to conduct violent operations where the cost to the human population, both, of course, in Israel, but also to the human population in Palestine, are absolutely massive. So it's much more complicated than South Africa. And it's the, the choice to opt for nonviolent struggle is much harder. I support nonviolent struggle in Palestine. I think because, of, because Palestine is a moral cause externally and because there's no, absolutely no there's a lack of support from the Arab world to the Palestinian cause, the nonviolent struggle is the way to extract political concessions from Israel. It's a very hard struggle to conduct, which is what makes what Gilbert called the magical thinking uh, operations of Hamas seem kind of attractive, but there's a route open to them in ways in which Israel has blocked every other kind of, of, of nonviolent resistance. So I think that's why the, the situation is much more complicated. The situation on the ground is much more complicated and Palestinians have much less leverage than South Africans have. It doesn't mean that there is a different way for the Palestinians to organize their struggle. There was an attempt in 2006 through the prisoners' document to create a very different kind of struggle where, which involves, right, which articulates, which combines both mass resistance, political resistance, nonviolent resistance, and allowed uh, resistance within international law, military resistance against military targets. There was an attempt to articulate that and to create a framework for uh, a Palestinian strategy of liberation, which all is Palestinian factions accepted at the time, but that just remained an empty document that was never translated on the ground. In order to do that, you need the conciliation between Hamas and Fatah. I don't think, I, I doubt that's possible after this kind of operation. And you need agreement on what the parameters of of resistance against the occupation are is that might well have to involve a very clear communication to the Israeli public that the Israeli public and civilians are out of the question. It may well have to involve clarity from the Palestinian side about who's a target and who's not a target. And it may have to involve directly talking to Israelis and forging combined, joint, shared, and I agree with that emphasis in the article, shared forms of struggle together in order to try to envisage and create conditions for the future. The problem is that Oslo has, has made those kinds of shared struggles impossible because it separated the populations and segregated them. So again, the terrain is much more complicated than the South African issue. And the settler regime in the West Bank and Gaza with its Jewish supremacy, with its annexationist land annexationist policies, taking the land without the people and the segregation is a very different kind of regime, much worse than apartheid in South Africa. Many thanks to Bashir Abumana for joining us at short notice to discuss the situation in Palestine. You can find ongoing coverage of what's happening on the Jacobin website.